I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space, time, brain, life, the universe. Today, the element that's essential to all life, we're asking could the great phosphorus shortage leave us hungry? We'll be investigating how much is left, how we might strip it out of human sewage, and what happens when supply doesn't meet demand. Plus, in the news, we'll be learning how to hide a secret message with a fizzy drink, 007 style. We'll be getting up close and personal with the cuddle chemical oxytocin and the transit of mercury. What does it all mean? I'm Kat Arney. And I'm Greer Jackson, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Around one in five people will have a severe episode of depression at some point in their life, but the current drug-based treatments we have can take weeks or months to work, if they work at all. More than a decade ago, scientists discovered that the animal anaesthetic ketamine had a powerful antidepressive effect, but the side effects, including loss of sensation, paralysis, hallucinations and out-of-body feelings, have limited its use. That might be about to change, thanks to research from Todd Gould and his team at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. The presumed mechanism whereby ketamine exerts its antidepressant actions has always been assumed to be via the same mechanism whereby it exerts its side effects, which is inhibition of a receptor for the neurotransmitter glutamate, the NMDA receptor. These are like the little gates on nerve cells that that send signals between cells, isn't it? Exactly. What was the question that you were trying to figure out with this research? Where did you take this idea next? What our evidence suggests is that it's not ketamine itself that is exerting the antidepressant activities. It's a breakdown product or metabolite of ketamine. Um, This metabolite does not inhibit the NMDA subtype of the glutamate receptor. It does enhance activity of another type of glutamate receptor, which is the AMPA receptor. The precise mechanism whereby it does this is is not clear to us yet. Uh, We also showed that if we give only the hydroxynorketamine, we observe similar antidepressant effects that we observe when we give ketamine itself. What would be the advantages of giving this breakdown product of ketamine rather than ketamine itself? So ketamine has a number of side effects. Some of them are related to its use as a club drug. And so what we show with this metabolite is that to the extent possible using our animal models, that we don't have any of those side effects. So we go up to actually pretty high doses, 40 times the antidepressant effective dose, and we don't see um, side effects. We also looked at the capacity of ketamine versus hydroxynorketamine to be self-administered. So if the mice keep wanting to take it, it's like they're addicted to it. Yeah, so basically mice press a lever to receive an intravenous injection of the drug. And mice will readily press a lever to receive ketamine. Whereas hydroxynorketamine, they, they couldn't care less. When can we get hold of this drug? What's the next step for it? So moving forward, we have a reasonable amount of confidence that hydroxynorketamine is safe. And the reason is that it's been in humans now for many decades, right? As a byproduct of getting ketamine, uh, you have hydroxynorketamine. So we know in in very general terms that hydroxynorketamine is is probably safe for humans. Uh, But we still have to go through all the necessary uh, regulatory steps, uh, toxicology studies in model animals to prove that before we can 
move on to clinical human clinical trials. Do you think there are other similar drugs that might be useful that you need to investigate in this way? As a as a pharmacologist, I I tend to think you know, when you give a drug that that that's all you're giving, and this is an example that when you're giving a drug, you're also giving all the metabolites of that drug, and most of the majority of drugs are metabolized. It's an important lesson to me and I think to the the field that uh, we we need to consider more vigorously that the biologically active uh, molecule may not be the drug itself that we're giving. Important work in an under-researched area. That's Todd Gould from the University of Maryland, and his research was published this week in the journal Nature. Now, Kat, whilst you've been looking at ketamine, I've been studying another type of chemistry altogether, the art of concealing top-secret messages using everyday liquids like cola, coffee or red wine. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine you're in a bar and, you know, your friend's gone to the toilet. You left just people watching. And then you notice there's a guy in the corner of the room who's looking pretty dapper, drinking a red wine very sophisticated and you start thinking hey maybe you'll go over there and say hi and then he spills his wine all over his notes maybe you won't be going over after all but chemistry professor mark lorch told me how actually this guy could be a secret agent in disguise this group in um, israel have come up with a way of encoding messages and hiding messages and then decoding them with common household liquids. So it could be a glass of wine or whatever. And so, you know, that person that you spotted over in that corner may well be that secret agent. That's pretty awesome. It is, isn't it? What they've done is they've taken a load of fluorescent molecules and combined them. So fluorescence molecules are basically molecules that absorb light of one wavelength and then emit it in another wavelength. Now, the really cool thing about this molecule then is that the light it gives off is entirely dependent on the conditions it's in. If it's in Coke, for example, it will give off a spectrum of light uh, that's unique to the Coke. And if you put it in a glass of wine, it will give off another spectrum of light or a cup of coffee, another spectrum of light and so on. So using that, they've managed to come up with a way then of encrypting a message. What I haven't told you, Mark, is that I'm actually a secret agent. And this interview, it's all a ruse. So you can tell me how to decrypt secret messages. So say I want to send you a message. And we're going to make it really simple. I just want to say hello. So hi is the message. Just hi. Okay. So the first thing we have to do is we have to turn the letters in hi into numbers. So let's say we make H1 and we make I1. Two, okay. Then what we have to do is encrypt that. So what we do now is we take some of this molecule and we put it into a solution. Okay, this is again could be your coke or your wine or whatever, and you then measure the spectrum of light given off by that molecule when it's in coke, for example, and then you assign part of the spectrum to each of the letters the H and the I. So let's say uh, 500 nanometers, we assign that to H, and 520 nanometers, we assign that to I. And then we measure the amount of light at 500 nanometers and 520 nanometers. And that gives us a number, okay? So the amount of light given off, we we measure that in arbitrary units. So let's say we, uh, at, um, at 500 nanometers, which corresponds to H, we 
get a value of 5. And at 520 nanometers, which corresponds to I, we get a value of 10. So now what we do is we add the 5 and the 10 to the 1 and the 2. So 5 plus 1 is 6, and 10 plus 2 is 12. So what I'd write down to you is 6 and 12. Yeah, so you'd send that however you'd like, in a letter, in an email, in a tweet, whatever, you'd send me 6 and 12. Now, all I have to do is take that same molecule, put it in the same solution that you've used, the Coke again, let's assume, and measure the spectrum. And then, again, I'll measure at 500 nanometers and 520 nanometers and get the values of 5 and 10 back out, take that off the 6 and the 12 to get the 1 and the 2, and we already know that the 1 corresponds to an H and the 2 corresponds to an I. From that, I get my message. So what I want to know is, would mm. spies actually use this? Or is this just a bit of a gimmick now that we've discussed it and everyone knows the secret? Well, I mean, I did wonder about this because it was published in an open access journal, which um, which, which makes you makes not, you wonder. No longer top um, secret, yeah. No longer top secret. But, you know, just because you know how the system works doesn't mean that it isn't still secure. Nevertheless, I think it's, um, it, would, it seems slightly strange. So next time you see someone knocking over their drink in a bar, Greer, it might be worth sidling over to say hi, just in case. Absolutely. Professor Mark Lorch from the University of Hull commenting on a paper published in Nature Communications this week. Hello, Greer here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and Greer Jackson. Coming up on the show, are we in deep doo-doo without phosphorus for fertilisers? I'll be heading to a sewage farm to find out. But first, we have your myth conception, Kat, don't we? So what have you been debunking this week? Well, I've been getting up close and personal with the so-called cuddle chemical. It's been described as the hormone of love and even nature's love glue. A simple chemical that bonds mothers to their babies is said to be responsible for keeping couples loved up and has even been claimed to be able to make us all more generous, trustworthy and compassionate. We're talking about the molecule oxytocin and there are research studies of varying size and quality showing that a lack of it might be to blame for problems such as alcohol or drug addiction. While a quick sniff of the stuff can keep men faithful, make you feel more sociable and even help you lose weight. But sadly for anyone who's hoping that a simple squirt of oxytocin might be the solution to all their problems and help them snare the subject of their dreams, it's a bit more complicated than that. Back in 2005, a trio of researchers published a paper in the journal Nature entitled Oxytocin Increases Trust in Humans, based on a small research study asking volunteers to play a game in which they had to trust each other and were also given sniffs of the chemical. And while there's no doubt that oxytocin is a very interesting biological molecule, the full picture is more murky than moral. Oxytocin is made in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus and transported out across the whole body. 
Beyond doubt, we know that it plays important roles in birth, breastfeeding and parental bonding. And we also know that it's released in the brain and elsewhere in the body by non-pregnant people. But what's a bit more tricky to prove is exactly what it's doing, if and how it can change human behaviour, and whether it's acting alone or in concert with all the other chemicals and cues that feed into our thoughts, feelings and actions. So what do we know? Some of the strongest evidence for a role for oxytocin in romance doesn't come from humans at all, but from a certain species of prairie vole, Microtus ochrogaster, that pair bonds for life. And giving normally non-monogamous vole species doses of oxytocin and another so-called happy hormone, vasopressin, switch them into monogamous behaviour. But importantly, it's not enough just to dose voles with drugs to make them monogamous lovers. They need to spend time together too, at least six hours of hanging out together to feel bonded. But, you might have noticed, humans aren't voles. So what else do we know about how oxytocin might affect our brains and behaviours? One small study of less than 100 participants, published in the Journal of Neuroscience, suggested that a sniff of oxytocin made men in long-term monogamous relationships keep a greater distance from an attractive woman who wasn't their partner than single ones. Oxytocin has also been found to improve people's perception of their own personality, in turn making them more outgoing in social situations, again in a small study of around 100 people. It's also been shown to counteract the feelings of drunkenness induced by alcohol and maybe even cut cravings for booze, and has been shown to play a role in addiction. Furthermore, a preliminary report from a study of just 10 overweight or obese men reported at a meeting in April this year suggests that a sniff of oxytocin might help to control their self-control around food. It's certainly not all good news, though. Giving people oxytocin can actually strengthen bad memories and increase anxiety, or make people oversensitive to the emotions of others. Meanwhile, a 2011 study with 280 Dutch volunteers showed that giving them oxytocin encouraged them to feel more negatively towards those perceived as outsiders, potentially encouraging racism, xenophobia and prejudice. It's also been linked with an increase in dishonesty in men, as well as other negatively perceived feelings such as envy and schadenfreude. Well, so much for the love chemical if it only applies to loving people like you. And another study showed that giving couples sniffs of oxytocin could boost communication between them. And while it's clear that communication is key to good relationships, and even just talking with and touching each other can lead to oxytocin release in the brain, but... Can adding oxytocin jumpstart the communication process and salvage your relationship on the skids? We don't know, because human love lives are far trickier to unravel in the lab than simple cells or organisms. And there are big differences between people that affect how they respond to oxytocin in different circumstances. Some down to personality, others are genetic, and yet more come down to sex. Men and women respond differently to the hormone. Regardless of the conflicting scientific evidence, oxytocin's reputation as the love drug is problematic because the reporting about its loved-up effects has now meant that it's possible to buy oxytocin on the internet, even though there's no good evidence that it's effective, safe for long-term use, or even that it is what it says on the bottle. So what does oxytocin actually do if it isn't fair to call it the love drug or cuddle chemical? And there's certainly no good evidence that giving people a whiff of oxytocin will make them fall in love, stop them from straying, or make the world a better place. 
that's an awful lot to ask of a single molecule in the molecular maelstrom of our bodies and brains. It's probably safest just to say that it's a molecule that has an influence on our social interactions. But exactly how depends on who we are and our circumstances. And that is not something a quick squirt from a bottle can change, however much you want to believe the hormone hype. Another myth bites the dust there. If you have any dodgy science you'd like Kat to question, you can tweet us at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Can you imagine a robot that's 100,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair? Devices this small, called nanobots, sound like something out of science fiction, but researchers at the University of Cambridge have this week moved just one step closer to them being a reality, with a hope that one day they'll be able to use them in the body for drug delivery. Professor Jeremy Baumberg spoke to Emma Sackville this week about turning nanobots into na-yes-bots. Well, we've had this idea that you could make tiny machines, what people have called nanobots, that could actually go inside the body or they could do something useful for us. And the problem has been we can't make them. Why is it that we have problems making them? When we try to think, make things move in water and they're very small, it's a bit like us trying to swim in treacle. It's very, very difficult. So we need to actually swim in a different way that we can't do front crawl in treacle. We have to do something a bit more like a bacteria, which is to flex things backwards and forwards. And that's actually really difficult to do. It needs a lot of force. And we haven't found a way of actually making things that produce a large force on this really small scale before. But the research you've just done is actually looking at making something that moves on a really small scale and produces that kind of force. Yeah, we call them actuating nanotransducers, or ants for short, because they are big, they're strong things and they can move more than their body weight. So what we've done is we've made some tiny particles which got a coating on them. And what these particles do under the right circumstances is they can actually produce a really large kick. And the way it works is we take tiny little particles, in this case we make them of gold, and we've learned to coat them with a, with a thin polymer, a bit like the polymers in our plastic bags, but this one's a gel. And most of the time, at room temperature, it likes to have little fibrils of the polymer which spread out into water. But if you just heat it a tiny amount, a few degrees, what happens is it starts to hate water. It becomes hydrophobic like many of us with swimming pools, and actually the, this gel will collapse. So we have these metal nanoparticles, and they want to now stick together because they're trying to get, get away from the water. So they stick together really close. Um, it's like a spring. They'll compress this polymer in between them. If they cool down very, very slightly, all of this reverses. And now the polymer wants to spread out into the water, but it's got to push apart the metal nanoparticles to be able to do that. So everything explodes. The nice thing is that we can do this heating and cooling with very weak beams of light. And so we can actually make a little engine which is just powered by a very small beam of light. Great. Well, can I go and see some of them in action? Indeed. So uh, I don't know what they're set up or anything. As Jeremy took me over to the lab, I tried to mentally recap exactly how these ants worked. So we have tiny bits of gold coated with a gel. And below 30 degrees, they like water and they're really spread out. If we heat them up or shine a light on them, then they stop liking water and they all scrunch together, just like a spring, as Jeremy said. PhD researcher Sean Cormier joined us in the lab to show me this change in action. Some of the ants, nice red colour, and you just have to heat it up above uh, 32 degrees. Okay, so we've got like a little tiny capsule just with a red liquid in, uh, and it's just in an oil bath at the moment, so we're just heating it up. And what exactly are we looking for? So what will happen is all the particles will actually change the way they interact with the water and they'll change colour because they'll stop liking the water and all collapse on top of each other. And now they're very purple. 
Yeah, okay, so the liquid's actually changed from red to purple. It changed pretty quick. How fast have you been able to measure it changing? So in fact, it's too fast for us to measure at the moment. And that's why it gives such a big force. And in fact, it's gone back to red. So what happens is all the ants cluster together, it goes purple. And then as soon as it cools, they explode. So that's how we keep track of it, by looking at the colour. It feels very weird to be in a lab without wearing lab specs, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You came from a good chemist. Oh my God, I'm a chemist. Everything is very safe at the moment, but you're right. We, we don't <laughs> Despite the name, the gel Sean and Jeremy showed me really looked nothing like an ant. I asked Jeremy whether he had any specific ideas about how they could use the ants or whether there are any future applications. So there's this area of science called microfluidics where you try and make little chemical refineries in some ways but shrunk down onto the size of a chip. So that's their idea for one of the earliest applications. For applications where we put them in our body, yes, indeed, we really don't know how to do that yet. Um, One of the good things is we don't just have to use light to make these things open and close. So it's actually rather a generic technology. And, yeah, we have to find out what's the the killer application or maybe the non-killer application for the body. (laughs) And if we did want to use them for these kind of applications, how easy is it to make them? Is a large-scale synthesis of them feasible? Yeah, that's the amazing thing. All the components, it turns out, are completely commodity. We can buy them on a very large scale. So, in fact, already there's nothing stopping us scaling these up and making a kilogram of these ants. We can replace the gold nanoparticles that we use at the moment with silver nanoparticles, which is cheaper, and we can use nickel or copper as well. That should be fine. So making them is not the problem. The question is how to turn them into something useful, and that's going to take us, uh, you know, the next year. We want to make some of these demonstrators in the next year. But, of course, what we really want is a lot of other scientists to join us on this quest. Professor Jeremy Baumberg from the University of Cambridge talking about his recent paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, Greer, you've had your eyes on the skies this week, haven't you? Because on Monday, Mercury transited in front of the sun and, amazingly, we could see it. Yeah, that's right. Mercury passed between us and the sun in an event that only happens every few years. David Rothery told me why they're so important. When it was first realised that planets would pass between the Earth and the Sun, it was important to look at transits because seeing the same transit from different points on the globe and getting the timings right helps you work out the scale of the solar system. The first transit observed was one of Mercury, in fact, early in the 17th century. And Halley was the one credited with realising the trigonometric benefits of observing a transit from different places. He said, observe the same transit from two distant places on the Earth and you can use trigonometry to work out the relative distance between the Earth to Mercury and therefore from Mercury to the Sun and therefore the Earth-Sun distance, which wasn't accurately known at the time. And this is how the astronomical unit came about. This is the definition of the astronomical unit, which is the average distance of the Earth from the Sun. And why is an astronomical unit important? Do we still, I'm thinking if we ever wanted to go to Mars, are we like, oh, it's like five astronomical units? I always think of things in light years these days. (laughs) Cast yourself back to the 17th century. We did not know how big the solar system was. It was late in the 16th, early in the 17th century, when opinion was swinging away from the old view of the solar system, which had everything going around the Earth, to accepting what Copernicus had said, is that, look, the sun's in the middle, everything else goes around the sun. And once that was realised, it became important to work out, well, how big is all this? So this was a step towards realising the scale of the universe, which is vast. 
Transits, like Mercury's, have been used to form the very basis of our understanding of space. But now that we've learned everything we can, are they just a pretty effect? Well, in our solar system, maybe. But if we look further afield using a telescope, we can actually pick up the transits of other planets around other stars. These so-called exoplanets cause a dip in the light of the star they're orbiting. And through monitoring their progress, the things we can learn are incredible. Dr. Carol Haswell is an astronomer from the Open University. In about, I think it was 2003, I saw the press release for a paper which had observed an exoplanet using the Hubble Space Telescope to look in the ultraviolet. And they had seen, instead of a 1%, very subtle dip, a 15% diminishing in the light from the star when the planet passed in front of it from our point of view. And this told us that the planet was actually surrounded by a huge cloud of hydrogen. And I just thought that was incredibly interesting that you could get such a prominent signal from something that is is actually a planet that we can't directly detect. And at that point, I just thought this is just too exciting and exoplanets are are the way to go. Before you you mentioned that you're looking at the chemistry of what's in these atmospheres, you mentioned hydrogen. What other elements can you detect? And I suppose, what does that tell you about that planet? The atmosphere of an exoplanet is actually generally quite a thin layer. But if you go further out the planet is actually surrounded by a much more extended cloud. So the exosphere, the extended atmosphere of the planet. So in the exosphere, we've discovered all sorts of things, including iron, carbon, oxygen, silicon, you name me a chemical. And whether or not we've discovered it is likely to be a function more of whether we actually have been able to make measurements at the right region of the electromagnetic spectrum at the right wavelength of light. What's the ultimate goal? Why study these exoplanets? We need to understand our own environment and particularly what we're doing to our own environment. And one of the ways that we can get insight in that is to look at a wide variety of different planets so we can examine all of the different bits of sort of atmospheric physics in different parameter regimes. And this allows us to actually, rather than just be looking at this one example, get some empirical, you know, measured data that will allow us to properly train our analysis of the Earth and be able to know that the the models do seem to reproduce reality. An astronomical thanks to the Open University's David Rothery and Carol Haswell. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and Greer Jackson. Now we go on to the main section of our programme. Many of us will have heard that familiar tune that scientists and environmentalists have all been singing from that same songbook. We take too much oil and gas out of the ground. We cut down too many trees and we spew too much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But a drum not often banged is the dwindling supply of phosphorus. It's an essential element for all life. It makes up our DNA and all organisms need it for energy. It can't be replaced. There is no synthetic substitute. In other words, 
without phosphorus, there is no life. And so, this week on The Naked Scientists, we'll be hearing about the phosphorus shortage that's looming and what can we do on our farms to stop phosphorus losses. I'll be getting myself knee-deep in dung to find out whether we could recover phosphorus from human sewage and use it as fertiliser. And we'll be finding out what happens when the phosphate supply doesn't meet demand. But first, I went on a field trip to the outskirts of Cambridge to find out how us Brits were once self-sufficient in phosphate production, thanks to dinosaur dung, and to ask whether we could be once again. Hi, Bob. You haven't been here too long. Well, I have, but I've been enjoying the sunshine. Ooh, I didn't realise how long it would take to cycle. How are you? Well, I've got a tremendous cold. That's Dr Robert Evans from Anglia Ruskin University and despite his tremendous cold, he still let me pick his brains about phosphorus. Oh, phosphorus P, phosphate. It's an element that most plants need to grow. It's part of proteins, it's part of your body, it's part of plants. And most soils, I think in Europe and probably worldwide, are short of phosphate. So it's a key ingredient for plant growth so if you want to improve yields you have to put these kind of things on i've read all sorts of weird sources of phosphate things like blood and bones and all sorts of things yes that's right when phosphate fertilizers were first devised it was mainly using rock phosphate and then when we had the phosphate nodules here the dinosaur poo it was obviously much cheaper doing it here what was this dinosaur poo? How is it formed? Cambridge green sand was forming over about 100 million years ago. And whether it's really dinosaur poo or whether it just looks like dinosaur poo, I think there's quite a bit of argument about that. So we are literally about about there. That's Colton, the village there. These are like... Instead of ordnance surveys, they're like geology surveys. The geology maps and these in places are almost identical. But the geology maps were looking at the rock at depth. We were looking at it in the top one and a half, 1.2, 1.5 metres. OK. So if you look on here, Cambridge green sand is literally in Cambridge. That's it. Mm-hmm. Nine to eight. There you go. Okay. This is a light blue sort of colour we're looking at. And you're yes, right, it is a very thin stretch that goes from sort of south west Cambridge all the way to sort of through north northeast yeah, Cambridge. Right. Yeah. But what I notice is all of Cambridge urban area is also in this light blue colour. Ah, well, that's because it's urban. Nine on this map means disturbed ground, right? So it's a very similar colour to your urban. <laughs> so it's not that Cambridge is sitting on a huge it supply is, of... There, there's probably quite a lot of it. In places it was really wildly excavated and there's quite a lot of, I think, the outskirts of Cambridge was excavated for the coprolite diggings. And on the outskirts of Cambridge is Coton, where one of the many excavations of coprolite took place. We wandered over to an adjacent field to a rather underwhelming plaque. This is a tiny sign. Coprolite you get down on your hands and knees to read it. I know. It's not very spectacular, but I was absolutely gobsmacked when I saw it. Gobsmacked because this sign represents a significant part of history, the East Anglian Gold Rush. So coprolite is the commercial name for phosphatic? Phosphatic. Phosphatic nodules, which were formed in the rock under your feet, deposited around 110 million years ago. When experiments showed that locally mined coprolite could be turned into fertiliser much more cheaply than imported bone meal, the great coprolite rush of the 1850s was on. And there's a picture as well, actually, there is. of uh, a diggings near Orwell, Orwell and Barrington. Barrington. 
the industry grew and landowners and tenants and agricultural workers alike could make money from the new industry. I mean, it's just amazing how quickly the labour market expanded. Well, something like Barrington, it said before the copra light industry, there was no one living there. During the industry, there was 155, and then afterwards, there were three. So actually, Barrington was born because of copra light. Yes. It says, in the peak, 1877, Cambridgeshire produced almost all of the 54,000 tonnes of raw phosphate used for fertiliser manufacture in Britain. So in actual fact, we were self-sufficient in fertiliser. That's absolutely gobsmacking. Well, (laughs) given today that we're not self-sufficient at all. In practically anything. And the industry waned in the 1880s as cheaper phosphate was imported from North America. And today, most copper-like diggings like this one are filled in and the land returned to agricultural use. Does that mean we could be self-sufficient again? No, it's all been dug out. All of it? Well, it's something like 40 out of well, thousands of acres that's left. So there's probably no more copper light diggings to be done. Dr Robert Evans from Anglia Ruskin's Global Sustainability Institute. So if we can't get dinosaur dung from Cambridgeshire anymore, well... Where do we get our phosphate from and how long will it last? We're joined now by Dr James Dyke. He is the co-chair of Sustainability Science Southampton. Where do we get our phosphate from for our fertilisers today? Well, the vast majority of phosphorus comes from phosphate rocks. So phosphorus is not a particularly rare element in the Earth's crust. About 1% of the Earth's crust is comprised of phosphorus. So that translates to something like a 1,000 billion billion tonnes of phosphorus. So there's a lot of phosphorus around. Unfortunately, there are not many high-concentration deposits of phosphorus, and it's those high-concentration deposits that thus far we've entirely relied on to power our agricultural system. So to sort of draw a parallel with something like oil, are there particular places in the world that are the phosphate capitals of the world where where this stuff can be mined? There are, and there's actually uh, many fewer places. So in terms of the good quality phosphorus deposits, you're looking at China, United States and Morocco and a couple of other countries that have about 85% of entire reserves of phosphorus. And in Morocco and the Western Sahara alone, you're most probably looking at about 75% of all the known high-quality phosphorus reserves. That, to me, seems kind of risky. It's always risky when you hear about an essential resource that is concentrated in just one or two places in the world. It might be, mightn't it? I mean, um, there, there's, uh, you might think that certain wars have been fought over getting hold of oil. We are seeing uh, armed conflicts for water. So one of the concerns is when we see these high concentration deposits begin to be depleted, we could be looking at just a handful of countries largely controlling the world supply of phosphorus. Oh, bring on the phosphorus wars, uh, not. Um, I, again, to draw another parallel with oil, there's been a lot of discussion about peak oil. Have we reached that? How many fossil fuels are, are left in the ground? Where are we in terms of phosphorus, of phosphate that's left? Ah, well, that is the $6 million question, isn't it? So it will depend widely on who you ask. So if you talk to the International Fertiliser Development Centre, it thinks that we will not see any constraints on phosphorus supply for a matter of centuries, maybe even up to 300 years. If you were to go and look at the United States Geological Survey figures from just a few years ago, they'll be giving peak phosphorus, so the maximum rate of phosphorus, and thereafter the amount that we're going to produce is going to get smaller every year. They're going to put that as little as 2030. So in as little as a few decades, we could see a continual and progressive decline in our ability to extract phosphorus from rocks. In that case, if that scenario is actually the one that's correct, 
this is actually quite an urgent problem. But then what happens to it? It's made into fertiliser, it goes onto the fields. Then what happens? Why do we lose it out of the sort of cycle? Yeah, you'd think, given that it's absolutely crucial for all uh, human life, at least, and all life on, on the surface biosphere, we'd be a bit more careful with it. But when you look at how much we waste... It's an extraordinary amount. It's about 80% of the phosphorus that's initially used, uh, initially dug out of the ground, is wasted before a human actually consumes it. Uh, so there are many points at which it's wasted. It's wasted initially when it's dug up and processed. There are losses there. There are losses when we put it on the field. Uh, soil erosion it gets blown away by the wind. It gets uh, washed away by water. Then when we grow the crops, uh, there's significant amounts of food that's lost uh, globally. So about 30% of global food produced is lost before it gets to market. And then when it's bought, especially in developed nations, uh, we waste a lot of food because we buy too much food and then we throw that food away. At each point on that process, we are losing those phosphorus elements. I mean, we can't ever run out of phosphorus. It doesn't leave the earth, but it's the, we're continually diluting that easy-to-get high-concentration deposits. And in terms of the stuff that we put on the fields that, that gets kind of leached away or, or lost, where does that end up? Well, unfortunately, uh, for many habitats, it ends up in watercourses. So in certain countries, uh, particular regions of China, let's say, uh, there's a large amount of input of phosphorus fertiliser on the land. Unfortunately, soil management is quite poor. Large amounts of soil end up in the water laden with phosphorus. It runs down through rivers into lakes, and there it produces uh, eutrophication events. It promotes so much algae. The algae clog up uh, the surface of the lake. They fall down to the bottom. Uh, they produce these low oxygen uh, situations which rapidly kill all the large plants and fish. And they go from nice, productive uh, aquatic environments that can produce fish for humans as well as other kind of uh, wildlife to these rather unpleasant green stinking lakes which can stay in that state for a very very long time after the input of phosphorus is stopped so it's a real ecological problem. So how should we be viewing phosphorus if it can cause this eutrophication is it a pollutant is it a finite resource is it precious how should we be viewing it? Well, it's both. It's absolutely crucial for life, but it's also an incredibly damaging pollutant that we put into our watercourses. So it's a finite resource in the sense of the high concentration deposits. There should be enough that would last us, but we need to do a much better job in managing the reserves that we have and then also making sure that we don't lose so much and then end up using it as essentially as a pollutant. What can we do to lessen this problem? Well, thus far, we've looked at it as a supply side problems. So the increase in phosphorus, when you look back over time, it's undergone this kind of exponential increase since the Second World War. But really, ultimately, what we need to be doing is taking some more inspiration from the biosphere. Phosphorus is a limiting nutrient for all life on Earth, and the biosphere has figured out how to recycle phosphorus. So it's ultimately going to be reducing the losses from the system. So that's more recycling, more careful application, and much less amount of food that we're going to waste. Thanks very much. That's Dr James Dyke from Southampton University and we will be coming back to him a little later in the programme. But now we turn to how we can lessen the problem by casting an analytical eye on our farms. Dr John Hammond from Reading University has been getting to the root of the issue for over a decade now. Hello John. Hello. Surely the first plan of action should be to reduce the amount of phosphorus we're using in the first place, right? Well that's right. 
phosphorus is essential for growing our food so we can't do away with it completely we have to have some inputs into the system and as we've already heard as to the second world war the amount of phosphorus we were using has increased probably more than it should have done but we are uh, on the case now and looking at that and certainly in the UK over the last sort of 20 or 30 years the amount of phosphorus going into our fields has roughly halved. But that's not enough then. I mean, what else should we be doing or can we be doing? Well, there are a number of things that we can look at. There are land management issues, looking at creating a healthy soil so the phosphorus in there is turned over, looking at alternative fertilisers and and sources of phosphorus from things like sewage. Or we can look at breeding crops which are better at capturing the phosphorus in the soil and using it more efficiently. Because I suppose there are places in the world, like Australia, I'm thinking, where it's really poor in phosphorus. So there are plants that grow there. So can we just sort of steal some of their tricks of the trade and and use them in our crops in the UK? Yeah, that's one of the types of things we're looking at doing. So these plants in Australia live on uh, very little phosphorus, and yet they're able to produce large amounts of biomass. So they have a number of attributes in their root systems and in their leaves that allow them to capture phosphorus more efficiently by exuding acids and enzymes into the soil to extract the phosphorus, making very good close relationships with things like bacteria and fungi in the uh, soil to help them capture the phosphorus, and and very extensive root systems that can mine the phosphorus from the soil. And these these bits of research you're mentioning there, have they been successful? Have we been able to breed them into other crop varieties? So there's been a number of attempts to do these things. So there's a couple of examples. For example, in China, there's uh, some soybeans which are now available commercially where they've overexpressed in the roots some of these enzymes which are released from the root into the soil. And these enzymes can break down some of the phosphorus locked away in organic compounds. And they are more efficient at capturing that phosphorus and and producing higher yields for less phosphorus inputs. And another example is in beans, where we've got this phenotype or characteristic of the root system where they're able to put a lot of their roots in the topsoil. Because phosphorus is very reactive, it doesn't move very far in the soil. It tends to stay in the top 30 centimetres. So if you can get a plant to put a lot of its roots into that area of the soil, um, it can capture more phosphorus. Is that not a bit of a risky thing to do, though? I'm thinking if there's a drought or anything, you want deep roots. So, I mean, you can't really put all your eggs in one basket, surely? No, no, that's it. So that is one of the downsides to that approach is if you put all your roots in the topsoil, you're at risk of not being able to capture maybe water and nitrogen, which are further down in the soil profile. So there has to be some aspect of plasticity in the, in the root system that allows the plant to respond to an appropriate stress. And you mentioned this sort of inaccessible phosphorus in the soil before and how these root systems produce enzymes to get this phosphorus out. I wondered if you could just sort of unpick that a little bit for me. Well, the plant can only take up phosphate, which is in the soil solution. And the rest of the phosphorus in the soil is is either bound to the soil particles through very strong bonds or in organic compounds, so dead plant material or dead microbes. But in the soil, there are fungi and and bacteria which have to scavenge that phosphorus as well from those sources. And they have these enzymes and ability to release acids into the um, soil to release that phosphorus from it. So plants historically are very good at making mycorrhizal symbioses, which help 
the mycorrhizal fungi captures the phosphorus for the plant and in exchange the plant gives the fungi some carbon so the plant can encourage those microbes to grow and help scavenge the phosphorus for them. I imagine though trying to unpick what microbes are doing that job is well next to impossible there are thousands if not millions of species of microbes in soil so so how do you go about finding the right one? It is very tricky and up until probably the last five or ten years it's been nigh on impossible because a lot of the microbes in the soil won't grow very well in the lab so it's very difficult to take them out of the soil and find out what's there. With the advent of new sequencing technology, we've been able to take the DNA out of the soil and sequence that DNA and start looking and identifying all the microbes that are there. But we're actually part of a a new BBSRC-funded project where we're looking at not extracting the DNA, but actually extracting the protein and sequencing the proteins that are in the soil around the roots so that we can identify the types of enzymes that are active in the phosphorus cycling process, but also the microbes that those enzymes came from in the first place. So you can sort of match them together and then hopefully design some microbial soil magic dust that you can sprinkle on and get your plants to extract phosphorus magically. That's but the I, idea. I just have a bone to pick with you because surely you're kicking the can further down the road for future generations to pick up though because we're still reliant on this phosphorus despite reducing it. Certainly, there's no way we can produce food without that. So it's it's still a question of minimising the amount we actually use and using it as efficiently as possible in the farming system. But we do need to look at a whole host of mechanisms to close that phosphorus loop so we're not losing it to the water where it's causing eutrophication and bring it back onto the farm so we've, we're not washing it all away. Dr John Hammond of Reading University, thank you very much. So we can minimise losses from farms and maybe even from the food chain. But like John has just said, this just delays the phosphorus problem and kicks the can down the road. What we need is a renewable supply of the stuff, the solar power of the fertiliser world, if you like, to close the loop and reduce the phosphorus leaching out into our rivers and oceans. Well, just over 15 years ago, a professor of civil engineering in the US, Don Mavenick, was trying to develop a way to get rid of a pesky white mineral that clogged pipes in sewage treatment facilities. This pesky white mineral was struvite, a combination of magnesium, ammonia and, yeah, you guessed it, phosphate. He thought, well, what if we could choose where this struvite formed? i.e. not in pipes, but in a convenient collection pot. Then we could stop pipes being blocked and sell this struvite as fertiliser. Win-win. But somehow, the idea of soiling my sorrel with a derivative of human excrement seems unpalatable at best, abhorrent at worst. But before we make any judgments, though, let's see how you get from poop to plant pot at Seven Trent Water with Pete Vale. There's three main stages to sewage treatment. The preliminary treatment stage where we take out coarse solids and that's what you can see over in that corner the the big steel structure then we have primary treatment where we settle out the settleable solids the uh, the fecal matter might sound quite unpleasant but it's actually uh, full of energy and it's a really useful resource for us because we take that sludge and we digest it in uh, our anaerobic digesters which are those huge concrete covered tanks that you can see um, couple of hundred yards away and those concrete tanks were massive (laughs) they are very big tanks there's an awful lot of sludge in those tanks like five stories high full of sludgy sludgy poo all cooped up in an oxygen free or anaerobic tank 
anaerobic bacteria break down the, uh, the organic content in the sludge and produce methane. And that methane we take and burn in a gas engine. The gas engine produces electricity, which we can then uh, use on site and export to the grid, and heat. And the heat we recycle back to the anaerobic digesters to keep them warm because they, they like to operate between 35 and 40 degrees C. And after this 15 days, what happens to all that sludge in, in there? So the sludge then is stabilised, so that means all the pathogens in it have been killed. We then dewater the sludge, so we use at Stoke Bardolph centrifuges. So we whiz the sludge around to form what we call a sludge cake. This delicious sounding sludge cake is one of the end products of all our poo. It's the mother of all confectionery in the plant world, plied with important ingredients needed for life. And who wouldn't want to see that? That's the sound of a fresh sludge cake dropping out of the centrifuges. And on closer inspection... Oh, it's steaming! It's steaming! Uh, It's very... um, Yeah, they're basically like mountains of black steaming soil. But this is really good for crops, really nutritious, rich in, I guess, phosphorus, but also other nutrients as well. That's right. So rich in nitrogen and rich in phosphorus. Now remember how the centrifuge siphons off the liquid from the solid sludge cake? Well, this liquid is called the liquor, and it's extremely rich in phosphorus. But Pete still needs to make it into struvite, this white mineral, so it can easily be sold and transported as fertiliser. So we left the sludge cakes in search of the phosphorus recovery plant, a big concrete barn decorated with numerous coloured pipes. We've taken the sludge liquor that's come from the centrifuges and we're dosing in uh, some magnesium to get the struvite to form. And the other thing that helps the struvite form is to raise the pH a little bit. So by blowing a bit of air into the tank, um, you strip carbon dioxide out, which raises the pH a bit, and then the struvite forms crystals. What happens to this is it's sold to a a fertiliser blender who uh, makes a liquid suspension fertiliser out of it. So they, they add in... Uh, nitrogen and uh, potassium to make a balanced fertiliser. And if every sewage plant in the country was making the struvite, how much could we make? I mean, would it be enough to cover the sort of stuff that we're importing at the moment? It's a bit hard to calculate, but as a rough guide, I think if we were able to recover all the phosphorus from sewage, and that's not an easy ask, I have to admit, but it would account for about 50% of the total uh, mass of phosphate that we import into this country so a significant contribution but is it commercially viable what's the sort of price range of this sort of stuff versus the stuff we're importing from rock phosphates for instance so a very interesting question and um, uh, at this stage the revenue we get from the struvi offsets the cost to make it but doesn't provide much revenue now that may well change over time as phosphate rock reserves are beginning to deplete so the likelihood is phosphate rock prices um, will rise. I mean value is one thing but I think the perception of turning what is essentially sewage into something that we then put on our crops and use to grow and then eat again is somehow I know it's treated but it's somehow unpalatable I mean would you be comfortable eating crops grown from this? Absolutely it's a purer form of phosphate than mined phosphate rock doesn't have the contaminants that phosphate rock has uh, that can be fairly high in cadmium and all sorts of things so 
while sewage is seen as well sewage today actually this will be a resource this is something you could actually marketably sell i mean there's something quite amazing about that yeah no absolutely right i think that's very much the future of uh, of sewage treatment because there's an awful lot of useful stuff in sewage cat i'm not sure how i feel about all of this eating you know plants grown from your own poo what are your thoughts well, actually, human excrement has been used as a fertiliser for centuries. Back in Victorian times and even before that, there were people going around known as the night soil men who would collect the contents of people's chamber pots from big towns like London and then ship it out to the countryside to be put on the fields. So, you know, there is a precedent and I don't really have a problem with it. Obviously, if the fertiliser is cleaned up and the vegetables and all sorts are washed properly before I eat them. Well, I guess you're ahead in your thinking than I am. Um, Pete Vale of Seven Trent Water there. So it's not all doom and gloom. There are things we can do to close the loop and lessen the load of the loss of phosphorus. But is it going to be enough? James Dyke and John Hammond are still with us. So, John, what do you think? Because I guess we're facing a, a growing global population. We've got issues of climate change. And now, as has become clear, you know, problems of water shortage potentially and phosphorus shortage. This sounds like a doomsday scenario. Yes, I think uh, there is a sort of perfect storm scenario that we could envisage coming up in the future where we've got all these competing interests coming together, population, food supply, climate change. But there are things that we can do and we are doing to try and mitigate that. But there's no single um, silver bullet. It's a whole host of things I think we need to do. So what can we do? Say me as an individual, I can do things to reduce my carbon footprint. I can cycle. I can, you know, try not to take so many flights. What can I do for my phosphorus footprint? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly is reducing our meat consumption. Producing meat uses far more phosphorus than it does producing sort of vegetables and grains. Going for a more vegetarian-based diet would certainly reduce it. And sort of research suggests that if we all went vegetarian, we'd probably reduce the amount of phosphorus we were using in our food production systems by 25 to 45%. And James, what about uh, reducing things like food waste? Are there other things we can do as a whole society? Indeed, yes. So in a developed nation context, we do throw away tremendous amounts of food. So that is throwing away a tremendous amount of phosphorus. In developing nations, the main problem they've got is getting the food from the field to the market before it rots. One kind of uh, optimistic slant on this is given how prodigiously wasteful the food production system is on Earth, there's an awful lot of uh, fat to cut. So there's an awful lot of savings we can make. And it just seems all round that if we can do things to reduce our consumption of, of water, of fossil fuels, to release less carbon and use less phosphorus, this is generally all round a good thing. So generally reducing consumption is what humans should be aiming to do on a personal and a society level. Yes, but if you look around, that's not the kind of message that you tend to get on a day to day basis. We are continually compelled to consume more. So by the middle of this century, when there'll be the greatest number of mouths to feed, there'll be 9 billion people, uh, we're going to have to produce 50% more food, gain access to 50% more water, generate 50% more energy, all at the same time as reducing our impacts on the Earth's climate. And that may unfortunately be around about the time when we could see a peak in our supply of phosphorus. So 
whilst there are lots of things we know we have to do, there's lots of uh, things that we can do individually, society, in a commercial uh, and governmental context. This really is a very significant challenge that I think it's fair to say we're not really addressing right now. But presumably every little will help. Absolutely. Do your part. (laughs) I think I shall uh, try and have more meat-free days. That's what I'm going to commit to. John Hammond and James Dyke, thank you very much. And thanks to all our other guests that have made the programme today possible. And lastly, it's time for Question of the Week. Emma Sackville has been all spaced out, deciphering Jeff's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. If we received an encrypted message from space, would we be able to recognise it, and if so, understand it? So, if E.T. could have phoned home, would his family have been able to call him back? I put on my tinfoil hat and met up with Dr. Duncan Forgan from the University of St Andrews to decode this question. If we received an an encrypted message from space, it depends on how good the encryption is. If a message is very well encrypted we wouldn't be able to understand it as an artificial message. It would just look like noise, just like the kind of noise you see in the, uh, the cosmic microwave background um, or the noise you see on your old-fashioned television set. If the encryption's not quite as good, then there are certain things that we can do to understand the quality of a communication. We do this with communication from animals. For example, we can give it, a, if you like, a rating to say how much information is contained in the signal. So we could certainly say this is very informative, But what the information actually is, is going to be very challenging to figure out. Have we ever had anything similar in the past that could have been a message that people were excited about? The one that everyone remembers is what's called the wow signal, which came in, I think, the early 70s. And it was a very strong narrowband transmission being sent to the Earth. We think now that it was a natural signal. It was actually something bouncing off something else. But that signal had no information in it. It was just a pulse. But then even if the signal's just a pulse, that still tells you something because, you know, a single pulse is basically hello. Ooh, <laughs> that could be interesting. OK, ultimate question. If we got a message and if we could understand it, do you think we should respond to it? Well, the issue is we don't have a legal framework for figuring out what to do next. We have what's called the reply protocols that SETI scientists wrote down saying, well, this is what we should do. But no one's going to follow those protocols because they're not in an in international law. So if a message was received and, say, for example, America wanted to respond but China didn't, um, tough. America could still send the message on behalf of all of Earth, which is not great. Um, <laughs> my personal opinion is that we shouldn't send any replies because, uh, speaking as a human being, I'm not particularly impressed with how well human civilization copes with its responsibilities as a steward of the Earth. A little bit of time maybe before we become more respectable as a a galactic civilization. That was Dr Duncan Forgan from the University of St Andrews. Next time we'll be sinking our teeth into Sol's question. What role does cooking food play in digestion? If you have any hot, burning thoughts about this one, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. 
And that is all we have time for today. The programme was produced by myself, Greta Jackson, and next week we'll be back to answer your questions, like do plants get cancer? And could the old wives' tale of Storm's curdling milk actually be true? If you have any burning queries to add to the list, then do get in touch. Tweet at Naked Scientists, find us on Facebook, or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Greta Jackson, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.